Didn't you love Renz's talk? I did. Uh, I'll tell you the truth. One of the things I loved was just hearing her accent. Do you know where she's from? Well, now that we are using this approach to, um, to YouTube, you can maybe chat a little bit while I carry on, and you can guess where she's from. Uh, I like trying to understand where people are from by their accent or trying to figure out where they're from by their accent. And there's a, there are several countries that kind of you can easily confuse one with the other, unless you're from one of those countries. In which case you would say, are you crazy? We don't sound at all alike. But, but here's, uh, let me give you a multiple choice kind of question about where you think Ranza came from. Um, there's England. There's Australia. There's South Africa. Zimbabwe. New Zealand. Is it one of those? Uh, they all kind of sound the same. Uh, unless, as I say, you're from one of those, and you'll be horrified at my saying they sound the same. Another thing that I loved was her talking about God taking Abraham outside and saying to him, look up at the stars. Can you count the stars? Because I'm going to make your descendants as plentiful as the stars. So as, as many stars as there are, that's how many your descendants are going to be, or, or more. Or the sand on the seashore. Can you count the sand? Well, go ahead and try that. I talk about that along with Ranza because the country that she's from is in the southern hemisphere, and it, it uh, helps us think a little bit more about looking up into the heavens. I've only been maybe four or five times in the southern hemisphere where I could see the southern sky. And, you know, whereas we're kind of familiar with looking up at the sky and seeing the, we called it the plow, what we called the Big Dipper over here, I think. Um, and you can imagine how it would be thought of a, as a plow or a Big Dipper. In, in the southern sky, there is a constellation called the Southern Cross. And I remember the first time I saw it, it it's, it's made up of four brilliant planetary um, phenomena and and they they loom really large in the southern sky and it actually I remember as I as I looked up at that sky thinking that it was different from the northern sky and remembering what God said to Abraham and, and how you know for a person to just see day after day or night after night um, a, re a reminder of, of what God had promised was a wonderful thing so as we talk about Abraham, we're going to go back to the beginning of what God began to do with humankind. And we know then that the Bible is really the unfolding story towards the climax of God saying, now the people who are the descendants of Abraham, the people that I promised would be more plentiful than the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore, here they are in a great, grand worship service when we're told in Revelation that they are from every kind of background that you can imagine, from every place, from every kind of person, from every kind of language. Wherever you could conceive of someone being from, God says, here they are. They are all uh, captured together in the people that I promised Abraham would be the father of. 
So we're going to talk about Abraham and the way that unfolded by going back to Romans chapter 4. And uh, I'll read to you this section as, as Paul is sort of theologically reflecting on the life of Abraham. He says this, um, Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. So what, what question is he asking? He's asking, um, is this something that God did only for the nation of Israel, for the Jewish religion, or is it for people who are part of a different religion or ethnicity or, or something like that? Uh, he goes on, and he says, um, how then was it credited? While he was circumcised? So was Abraham already um, related ethnically, nationally, um, to the people of Israel? Or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised. So he, he says the way into this for Abraham was not through the religion of Judaism because it was before that that he was credited righteousness. And, and for, for Paul, that's an incredibly important theological point as he's trying to instruct people who are not from uh, the Jewish religion and those who are from the Jewish religion trying to figure out how they relate to each other. So, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So Paul makes the point that... Um, this did not come by a religion. And that's really what I'd like to kind of expand on today about the way religion has been or has not been um, a help to us in our relationship with God. So I don't want to use the word religion in a particularly pejorative way. I don't want it to be a negative word because it's a very important word. And it is a very important facet of human existence. Uh, Paul says that when God considers his humankind, he says he has two things that he has against us, and, and they are that we, first of all, didn't glorify him as God, and we didn't give him thanks. And so that would be a good definition of religion, to be a religious person would be someone who is acknowledging that God is, believing God, believing in God, and then giving him thanks. So glorifying him is to say there is a supreme being, there's a, a, a creator God, and we glorify him. We, we know we're called to worship him. And we are called to live lives that are thankful to him. So that's what we ought to do. And in its best sense, that's religion. That is religion, 
for those who want to have a relationship with God. But sad to say, religion has not um, helped us sometimes to to be the kind of people that God would prefer us to be in a relationship with him. And I want to explain that today a little bit by just showing you a picture that, that, that kind of critiques religion and says religion can have the propensity or religion can be inclined to exclude people. And we, we would want to ask, well, is, is that what religion was intended to be or is that a dysfunctional religion? And, and we'll say that's a, a dysfunctional religion. And, and the case study for this is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 4. He says, look, did Abraham get to be a person who was credited righteousness? Did Abraham get to be a person who pleases God because he was religious? And Paul says, no, that's not it at all. In fact, Paul is going to pains in his day to expand religion, not to exclude people by religion, because that's what sadly had come about by the practice of religion by the Jewish nation. They accepted that God had favor for them, and they presumed that that meant favoritism, that that God only loved Israel, that God only loved that religion. And Paul says that, that that's not it at all. In fact, he is called to open the way to um, the amalgamation of at least two um, kinds of background people, those who are Jewish background and those who are Gentile background. And he said, it's not their background that is the way into a relationship with God, it's faith. And Abraham is the father of all who believe. And, you know, as, as I say, when we get to Revelation, we see really, in a sense, God behind the scenes smiling and saying, when I promised Abraham, this is what I had in mind. Well, as I say, um, sadly, we have allowed religion to exclude people. And faith we might dare to say, actually would rather include people. So the, the default position of religion might often be, by definition, to exclude people of other backgrounds, whereas faith is an embracing kind of a disposition that says, no, um, in terms of a relationship between humankind and God, God opens his arms wide. He, he doesn't say, oh, you are not of this religion or this ethnicity, therefore you can't be in a relationship with me. Nor does God actually sort anything into that kind of, of um, a claim and, and say, you know, if you're this, you can't be in a relationship with me. If you think this way, you can't be in a relationship with me. If you do these things, you can't be in a relationship with me. The way that God is, is not a narrowing kind of a way, but it's an expanding kind of a way. And religion, we have often taken 
to be a tool to say who's not in, who doesn't belong, who's not welcome, rather than a way to begin to open the doors wider and wider to say that God is a welcoming God, and there's no one who, by virtue of their background, is excluded from a relationship with God. He is a God with welcome, open arms, saying, why don't you come? The song, Come to the Table, is a, is a great song to, to uh, kind of explain that. Go a little bit farther, and we'll just say that when religion reduces things to the, the, the fewer things that we need to believe and practice, um, we may be you know, flying in the face of, of the faith demeanor that says, no, we, we don't reduce, we expand. We, we, we look for bigger, we look for more. Um, we look to stretch on. Now, on, on this slide, I have placed a cross in the middle very deliberately because while we have conversations about who's in and who's out, and that's often what religion ends up doing, um, we need to understand that there is something that is an overarching commitment. We're told in the scriptures that there's only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. So the cross is, is if you like, the limiting factor. Uh, that however all of this works, there's only one way to God. Now, how God applies the fact that Jesus Christ's sacrificial death was enough to open the way for all of us to come to God. Um, we understand that how God applies that is, is God's sovereign decision. We know that there were people before the life of Christ who didn't hear about him, but by faith, they, they rehearsed some sort of drama in the sacrifices that God was taking and moving forward and, uh, and applying the death of Christ to them and calling it belief and crediting righteousness. Practically speaking, we also um, would say that those who die before they come to what we would call the age of understanding or um, little children They've maybe not heard about Christ, and they've not been able to receive him as Savior, so to speak. And we hear the New Testament say that, Jesus, in fact, saying, you be very careful about offending one of these little children, because their angels behold the face of my Father in heaven. We think it's only people in a relationship with God who have an angel that would be beholding God's face in heaven. People who have never heard the gospel, um, would we say that they don't get into a relationship with God? Would, would we be sort of reducing like that? Or we would say perhaps that, well, actually it's, it's up to God how he, how he applies the death of Christ. So at the end of the day, no one comes to God except through Jesus. What that means through Jesus is something that makes us kind of twist our heads theologically. But I think the overriding 
sort of theme of scripture about God's disposition is that God is more expansive than he is reductive. So, so if we look in, into the stories of the Bible, I think we will find over and over again that the way that God behaves is always a more kind of a behavior rather than a less kind of a behavior. Maybe, you may even just be able to think through stories of the Bible and accounts of the Bible, narratives of the Bible. Let me give you one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, that say that when, when God does something, he doesn't do it in a less kind of a way. He does it in a more kind of a way. In the Old Testament, there's a story of Elijah and a widow. And she is at the end of herself. She, she's at the end of her resources. Um, she's being threatened to be left you know, penniless and um, familyless. And Elijah says to her, well, what do you have in your house? And she says, well, nothing except a jar of oil. And Elijah says, well, I'll tell you what. Go out to your neighbors and find as many jars as you can, as many vessels, as many, you know, containers as you can and, and bring them here. And when she does, and they pour the oil from a little jar, from one container, they fill all of the jars. And Elijah says, can you get some more? And they scour the village, and there's not a vessel left to be found. And then the oil stays, it says. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That when God was going to supply the needs of this widow... He didn't do less than she expected. In fact, he did abundantly more than she expected. Because I think God is not into this idea of things being narrower and less and exclusive and only us. God is a God of largesse. He is a God of great generosity. He's a God of incredible grace. So, there was more oil than she expected anybody could supply to her. In the New Testament, we come across an, another lovely story, the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And, you know, they, the disciples come to Jesus and say, uh, you should send the people away to, to get bread because, you know, it's supper time. And Jesus said to them, well, you feed them. And they say, well, where are we going to feed them? We have nothing. And then there's a little boy that is brought to Jesus. And, you know, you sort of see this little boy with his bag lunch. And uh, they say, well, here's this little boy. He's got this little lunch. But, I mean, come on, let's be serious. What's, what's a little boy's lunch among so many? And Jesus said, well, go ahead and distribute. And 5,000 people... Um, I, I think it's said 5,000 men besides women and children, so it's certainly several thousand people. From one boy's lunch, they're all fed. And that's, that's one aspect of it, is that how in the world could that lunch be multiplied into so much? But then there's a lovely little ending to the story that says that there are 12 baskets of food left over. Was Jesus more into less or more? 
Here's a story, again, that just says that God is a God of abundance. God is a God with a heart that is larger and larger. God, as he calls forth his people, he calls them from one person, Abraham, and as we get all the way to the end, we hear accounts in Revelation of there being 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands more and multitudes that nobody can count and people from every kind of conceivable background. And we find that God and the way of faith is a way that is large-hearted, that expects more rather than ever expect less. Let me take you to just the one verse in Ephesians about that, that that kind of drives home the point. Now to him, says Paul, who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, to him be glory. So how do we apply this? As as we apply it in, in our Christian lives, um, we need religiously, first of all, to understand that it's not up to us to say who's out as much as it is up to us to open the doors and say, God has extended his grace to all. And again, in the background of all of it is the death of Christ that has made that possible. But God opens the door and says, come. And when we seek to live in a relationship with God, when we ask him for things, we need to understand that he is more inclined to give us more than less. I, I think we, we don't practically understand that because we sort of feel as though we have to convince God to give us anything, um, whereas Jesus tells us that we can ask him for anything. Um, and when we ask him for things, Paul says, we'll discover that he's a person who can do far more abundantly than we ask, or even that we can imagine. Do you live a religious kind of life or a faith kind of life? A religious kind of life can be narrowing. It can be excluding. It can say, only us, not them. It can say only those who believe this, not those who believe that. And sad to say, churches as part of religion can often be identified by the way that they have narrowed um, in terms of being pure in their belief or faith. And they, they will um, you know, at least nudge people out who don't dot their I's and cross their T's quite the way that this group might think they, they did um, or they should. And we need rather to step back and say, well, is that, is that how God views things? Would God prefer that we become narrower and narrower to be pure and right? Or would he prefer that we become broader and broader in love and acceptance, understanding that he's the one who knows what's in people's hearts. It's not up to us to decide what is in people's hearts. Rather, we can um, essentially defer to God and say, he knows what he's doing, but everything we see about him is not uh, indicative of less as much as it is 
indicative of more. So are you a person who is a person in the less category or the more category? Uh, are you a religious person that um, shows prejudices and biases that are not God-honoring at all? Are, are there people that aren't welcome to you? Are, are there people who what they do or who they are or how you think they're connected exclude this, them from, from you know, your friendship or being invited to your church with you or uh, even sitting with at the lunchroom or over coffee? Or are you someone who says, you know, God gets all that sorted out um, and, and he knows what he's doing and he knows what he has accomplished through Christ. So it's up to me to be expansive and welcoming and more in both the way I relate to God and in the way I relate to my human being, uh, fellows, brothers and sisters. Let's be people of the more rather than of the less.